This entire quarter, we're looking at practical lessons for the Christian life. Uh, Just nuts and bolts things that may seem so basic, but are so fundamental to the development of Christian character and the practice of a Christian lifestyle. And today we're looking at tithes and offerings. Now, last time we were together, we looked at our health, our physical well-being, and what the Lord expects of us from the standpoint of physical health and diet. We noticed in Genesis chapter 1, of course, and you don't have to turn there, but it's always good to. If I make reference to something, you can double-check to make sure it's still there in your Bible. But in Genesis chapter 1, in fact, the opening statement of all Scripture is that in the beginning, God did what? Created. It does not say that in the beginning, God instructed man to create, because we didn't create. We can't create. Only God can do that thing and create. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And all of Genesis chapter 1 simply outlines sequentially, chronologically, that creation process that God himself did. And at the end of that creation week, he sets up man, humanity, the man and the woman, as the caretakers of his creation. He said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over all the earth. And he gives to man not the honor of being the creator, but the honor and responsibility of being the curator, the caretaker of that which he had made. Now, in that original sentence there, in that original statement, you don't find the word steward or stewardship, but that's exactly what's being described. Mankind is not the creator of anything. But we have been left a responsibility to be the curators of God's creation, the caretakers or stewards of all that is His, just merely by the fact of creation alone. This is completely apart from redemption. Even if man had never sinned, God's ideal for him was that he, along with his family and those who would be on the earth, would be the caretakers of his planet. But of course, we know right from Genesis chapter 1, we have another beautiful chapter, chapter 2, and then we have chapter 3, where we fall into sin. And the same creator who built us, who brought us into existence, now bought us back with his own shed blood. Thus, the Apostle Paul could write in the book of 1 Corinthians, you can find this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I would invite you to go there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He gives this beautiful premise, this beautiful principle about Christian living. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. In the immediate context, he's talking about sexual purity, but he's also indicating a broader principle of our responsibility to God. And he says it in such a way that this should be common sense. Look again, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 19, he says, Or do you not know? The implication is this is stuff you should already know. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And here's that principle. And you are not, what? Your own. A very simple biblical principle. You are not yours. God created you, so he has rights to you by creation. And he redeemed you, that same Jesus Christ who brought you out of the clay, now bought you with his own blood. And he says, do you not know that you, O Christian, are not your own? Again, two weeks ago, we looked at the health expectations the Lord has for us and the diet he would like for us to maintain, to maintain these bodies that are not our own. And today we're going to extend that and look now not to the physical, but to the financial 
aspect of life. What is God's plan for money? It's a very simple premise, and the title is Tithes and Offerings. But before we do any study of God's Word, let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this beautiful Sabbath day. Thank you for giving us life at all and giving us this caretaker responsibility of all that is in it. Lord, help us to understand what you ask of us and help us to execute your will faithfully. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Money is... Well, how do I say this? Money is weird. Okay, let me explain what I mean a little bit. Money, at least from my thinking. Now, you might have a different perspective on it, and that's totally fine. But from where I'm sitting, in the landscape that I see, money is weird. And I see our church treasure just looking right at me. What's he about to say? Money is weird. And by this I mean that each of us has certain needs, you know, and we are not like the animals. We need, we need uh, clothing. We need transportation. We have, I mean, there's a whole gamut of things that makes life operate that we need. And I don't just barter and trade the things themselves. We have this third-party denomination called money, right? And it is the juice that goes in between every interaction. It's the oil that makes the engine of commerce run. All the things in life require this exchange of currency. Money is weird that there's this nebulous third, and it affects everyone, whether we have a lot of it or a little of it. We all need some of it and have to do something with it. All the cares of life come down to this. Now, I know that there are idealists who say things like, oh, we don't need money, we just need love. No, you don't, you need money. (laughs) Try going to Meyer and buying something with love. (laughs) They will not accept it. It will be denied, right? So the Lord understands this, and he's put into our lives this interesting thing, this what I call weird construct of currency exchange. We have money. Now the question is, what do we do with it? Now, all finances impact us to some degree or another, and they also have a significant effect, believe it or not, on our Christian experience. There's a reason there are only a few things you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. Politics, religion, and money. right? Because they bring out some interesting character traits in some people. Right? Some things can be intense. Things can get interesting. Holidays can be memorable. Either for the better or for the worse, our dealing with this commerce has an impact on our Christian experience. Are we making sense so far? Now, for instance, if you're in dire lack of funds... Lack of money and the things that, of course, money affords, not just the cash itself, but the things, the food, the clothing, the extra things it affords, you become susceptible to certain temptations that others may not have. You may have some bitterness, some resentment, some anger, some jealousy. Tempted to have them. You might take on an attitude of, woe is me. Now, on the other hand, if you have excess of money, you've got other temptations. You're susceptible to some other issues. Maybe pride, some arrogance, so maybe some... Whoa, look at me. Very closely related, but totally opposite end of the spectrum. But interestingly enough, by the way, ironically, both scenarios lead to the same end. If you don't have enough, or you got a whole lot, you could be susceptible to the same temptations. A sense of dissatisfaction and hunger for more than what you currently have. 
called selfishness. And it's the exact opposite of godliness that the kingdom of heaven is built upon. Finances can have a significant impact on our Christian experience and our character, either formation or deformation, as the case may be. So as we understand that money has such a direct implication for the development of character, it becomes less surprising when we turn to Scripture, and as one scholar noticed, we find that Jesus talked a great deal about money. Believe it or not, there's a lot in the Scripture that talks about money and finances. Sixteen of 38 parables given in Scripture that Jesus gave were concerned with how to handle money and possessions. In fact, in the gospel, believe it or not, an amazing one out of every ten verses, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. Now, it may be a thing that we don't talk about much, but Christ and his word has a great deal to say about money. Let me give you a couple examples of Christ's instruction in regard to money and the things that it can afford. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and you can tell me what audience was Christ speaking to when he gave the following counsel. Matthew chapter 6, this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And right here in the heart of it, Jesus gives a principle and then explains it. Let's start with verse 24 of Matthew chapter 6. And again, by picking up what Jesus is addressing, you can begin to understand who he's addressing. Matthew chapter 6, start with verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and what? Mammon, that is, money and the things that it affords, the things of this life. And so he sets up this construct. He's like, there's God, and then there's money, and you can't be loyal to the one without harming the other. You have to have a priority. You can't say, no, I love you both equally. No, 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 no. It's either one or the other. And then he begins to explain what he means. Verse 25, therefore, anytime you see in the Bible the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what is it therefore? It's an explanation of what he just said. Okay? Therefore, in light of what I just said, Christ repeats, therefore I say to you, do not, and what's that word? Worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food in the body, more than clothing? Notice that Jesus is addressing people who are tempted to worry about having the basic necessities of life, food, drink, clothing. This is very low on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know. They're not talking about how are we going to afford a nice IRA and our income and it will No, no. They're talking about how do I live today and then how can I make sure tomorrow's taken care of? Living day to day. This is the audience that Jesus is addressing here. This is the poorer class. Okay? He goes on. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? It makes me wonder if Zacchaeus was in the audience that day. Money and short were his two big issues, right? But he goes on. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. 
And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So now he comes to the principle. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? He goes on to say, Therefore, do not, what? Worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Now, is it wrong, by the way, to think about what you're going to eat, drink, or wear? No, we just had a sermon. We should think about what we eat. We should think about what we wear. But what should we worry about them in the sense that God won't take care of us? No. This is what Christ is teaching. And he says the Gentiles seek after those things. The implication is with no thought of God in their thinking. They're just focused on their continuance and their sustenance. But he then says, but seek when? First, the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Now, we talk about that. Sometimes we even get the song. There are certain scripture songs that are so famous, they get stuck in your head. You can't read a passage of scripture without singing that song. I'm not going to do it for you here today because that would get us off track. But this is a very well-known saying of Jesus, right? Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all those things... But notice the context of when he's saying this. He's talking to people about money and about the things that money affords. Food, drink, clothing. But he says, in your financial dealings, in your personal economy, in your commerce, you should put God where? First, and then these things will come along. He makes a principle. He says, you can, remember he's expounding on you can either serve God or mammon. So if you have to choose between the two, the things of heaven or the things of earth, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of man, you put God first and he will help take care of all the other things. It's a principle that God has done. And notice who he's telling it to, the poorer classes, right? In fact, if you were to go back up to verse 19 of the same passage, again, we get the context to whom Jesus is talking to here. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures where? On earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Okay? And then he expounds on that, about there's a difference between heavenly thinking and earthly thinking, and we have to choose one or the other, therefore choose God first. So all of this is an explanation that logically flows out of that concept of store up for yourself treasures in heaven, and don't worry about the things of the earth so much. Now, the reason I bring that out is that was Christ's counsel financial counsel to the poorer classes. Now, same book of the Bible, same Jesus giving the counsel, go to the right to Matthew chapter 19. Fascinatingly enough, again remember, Christ's counsel to the poorer classes was seek ye first and lay up your treasure in heaven. Now, we have an interaction between Christ and someone on the opposite end of the financial spectrum, someone exceedingly wealthy. And notice what happens. Verse 16 of chapter 19. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Now let's just pause and analyze the question. There's a thing that in debating, there's a thing that you can do which is to reject the premise of the question. You know, it's that famous in 
when did you stop beating your wife? Well, you can't answer that one without accepting the premise of the question. You have to reword the thing, slow down. That's built on a false premise, right? This man asks Jesus a question. What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Notice the implication. Christ is the one who has the thing that he wants, which is eternal life, yes? This guy doesn't have it, but would like to have it, and so he proffers Christ a deal. You name the price, and I'll give it. You name the action, you do the thing, you, you tell me what it takes, and I will do. He's looking for a commercial transaction for eternal life. Now, it may not be money itself, but it's some sort of, tell me to climb a mountain, tell me to do this. You name the price, and I'll pay it. He's used to dealing in a commercial way. You have a thing I want, I have a thing you want, let's make an equitable deal. But Christ begins rejecting the premise of his question. First of all, he asks, are you coming to me as a good teacher in the sense that I've got some good instruction on financial living? Are you coming to me as the son of God? Notice this now, he says, still in chapter 16, I'm sorry, 19, verse 16 is where we started. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? It's like it's interesting the way you started that question. No one is good but one, and that is God. So are you coming to me as looking to God or just a wise man? But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Very simple. He said to him, which ones? Jesus says, and it's interesting, he starts listing them off. Now, wouldn't the easiest answer be like, well, duh, all of them. But this guy has something in his head, and Christ is walking him through it, right? Now, watch this. Watch carefully the ones that Jesus quotes. Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. First of all, do you notice what Christ emits, omits, I'm sorry, omits from that list? Well, number four, also number three, two, and one. The whole first table of the law is out. Has no problem with what he's doing with God, but he addresses his issues with the fellow man. Now, he lists off, it's really interesting how he does this, he doesn't start with number five. He goes six, seven, eight, nine, six, seven, eight, five, right? And he leaves off one from the table of the law, which is the very last one, you shall not covet, right? So six, seven, eight, nine, five, and leaves off number 10. He's whittling in on this guy's problem. He starts with the neighbor of yourself and the coveting. And notice the man's reaction. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? So they're all kind of, they're almost playing out a charade right here. Nobody wants to say the thing, right? So Christ just breaks the logjam. Jesus said to him, If you want to be, what's that word? Perfect. Notice I didn't say it, Christ said it. Because if that's what you're aiming for, here's what you do. Go sell what you have 
and give to the poor. And you will have what? Treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Treasure in heaven. The identical counsel he gave to those who are poor, he now gives to those who are rich. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, lay up yourselves treasure in heaven. And this way, for them, laying up treasure in heaven meant don't worry. You put God first in your life, even if it's just a pittance, and God will take care of the necessities. This man has an abundance, and don't worry about hoarding it for yourself. You can give that away and trust that God. To the poor, God says, I will give all that you need. To the rich, he says, I will give you just what you need. But the, the ultimate object is to trust God and his provision for our needs, both to the poor and to the rich. And his counsel is word to, for word identical. Store up for yourselves, lay up for yourselves, treasure in heaven. Now, God's financial plan, and I want you to make sure to hear this. I wrote it carefully. I want to make sure this comes across correctly. God's financial plan concerns character, not merely capital. Okay? God's plan for our use of funds, our finances, our money, is not about the money itself, but about the relation that we have to God in relation to that money. Okay? His ideal is that we develop a Christ-like character, not just that we have an ample amount of capital. Okay? Which, by the way, strikes right at the heart of something that's very popular today, which is prosperity preaching. This concept that if you send in your 1995, the Lord owes you 1995, right? The Lord never said that to the rich or to the poor. It was never about the accumulation of capital, but the development of character for how we deal with finances. That's an important distinction. And while there is much, 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 much more that could be said about God's plans for our finances, some of which I anticipate will be covered next Sabbath when the Trust Services Director for the Mission Conference, Joel Nephew, Pastor Joel Nephew, will be here and presenting the morning message, and I anticipate he'll deal with trust service issues. But today I want to briefly cover two of the most basic structures of Christian financial management, tithes and offerings, tithes and offerings. Now, let's go back to Genesis chapter 14. We're going to look first at the tithe and look at the, then look at the offering because there's a distinction, a clear distinction, an absolutely necessary distinction between the two classes of tithe and offering. A distinction between tithe and offering. Tithe is one thing and offering is a totally different thing. Now, in Genesis chapter 14, we have Abraham before he was called Abraham. He was simply known as Abram. He doesn't become Abraham till Genesis chapter 17. But in chapter 14, he's still Abram, and he's going to the promised land, and his family member Lot has come along, and for better or for worse, he's there. And in this case, it's much worse. He's headed off down to the cities of the plains. There's been a war, and Abram has to go and rescue him. 
You're likely aware of the story, but in the midst of the story, after Abraham rescues Lot and his possessions, and he hoards, and doesn't hoard, but he, he has this great bounty that he's coming, uh, that he has received from this action, all of a sudden we're introduced to a character by the name of Melchizedek. Look at chapter 14 of Genesis, verse 18. It gives us no background to him, doesn't introduce us earlier on with the story of him growing up and what he was like as a kid, none of that. It just says, and then there was Melchizedek, verse 18. Then Melchizedek, but it does give us his title, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Now, we don't know anything about that in that immediate context. It just mentions his name. He's the king of Salem, and he's the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, and that is Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, and notice this, possessor of what? Heaven and earth. And now why is he the possessor of heaven and earth? Because he's the creator of heaven and earth. Yes? God would through David later on say, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is mine. All the earth and all of its fullness is mine, says the Lord. Right? And here the priest of God most high clearly says that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And as it says in verse 20, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now look at Abram's response, and he, that is Abram, gave him a tithe of all. Very simple premise. A tithe, it literally means a tenth of all. All that he had increased from this experience, he now gives to the Lord through his person of Melchizedek, through his worker on the earth, Melchizedek. So he returns to the Lord, the possessor of heaven and earth, that which is his. Which is why, now Christ can say pay tithe because it's a payment to him, right? But it's really just returning tithe, right? All the world is God's. We are simply the caretakers. So God, by rights, could not just claim 10%. He could claim 50, couldn't he? How about 90? Could he do that? How about 99? How about 100? Yes. He could take our very lives if he wanted to. It's his to start with, right? But instead of taking it all back, he says, I'm going to let you keep 90%, but I want you to give me 10. And I expect you to give me 10. In fact, I require you to give me 10. We'll look at this in a little bit, but you'll never ever hear, at least one time from this pulpit, I hope, an appeal for tithe. We don't solicit tithe. We don't ask you, we don't make a flowery like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to give? I don't care if it's nice to give or not. I don't care if you're happy, do it. Right? And I know that's cold and it sounds very mean, but God never once appeals to our gratefulness and our thankfulness and our happiness when it comes to tithe. He simply says, all the earth is mine. Return to me a tithe of all. Simple structure. Thus, even in our own home, we have, when a little, you know, Little denominations of 5 or $10 or something come in for the kids. We put little tithe envelopes, get them practicing that everything that you had now that you didn't have before, that increase goes to the Lord. And let me ask you a question. Does it go to him after you pay taxes? No. Seek ye when? First the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added. Lord says, you put me first, and everything else can take care of it. Now let me ask you a question. Does God need our finances? Of course not. He already has them. (laughs) 
He owns us. If he wants to check out your bank account, he can just, he can do it. In fact, he can make his own mint. Amen. He can make stuff that we haven't even imagined yet. He can create out of nothing. It's called ex nihilo. He can speak and it will be there. So why does God require of us this pittance 10% when he owns all heaven and earth? Is it for his benefit? No. It's to teach us a lesson about needing to rely upon the Lord for our daily living. Right? Thus again, he doesn't appeal to any kind of gratitude. He just simply says this is a Christian duty. Return the 10%. Now, what happened with Abraham and Melchizedek was formalized or codified in the ancient Israel economy. In fact, go to Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus chapter 27. We'll just look at a couple of views of this. And again, like I said, there's a much, much deeper study we could do on this, but I just want to hit the high points and get the idea clearly across about tithes and offerings. Leviticus chapter 27, let's look at verse 30. What does the Lord call the tithe? Leviticus chapter 27 and verse 30. Very simply, he says, And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. Now watch this. It is what? Holy to the Lord. It's holy to the Lord. Can you think of anything else that is holy to the Lord? Sure, the Sabbath comes rapidly to mind. We're experiencing it right now. It's holy to the Lord. Now, what I find fascinating is there's a lot of similarities between tithing and Sabbath keeping. For instance, both were established by God as a reminder of his unique ability to create us and sustain us. Right? Think about this. The Sabbath is a continual reminder, a memorial to his creative power. The tithe is a continual reminder of his sustaining power, that if you put him first, that all will be provided, whether you eat or you drink or whatever you wear. He said, that's a continual reminder of my creative ability and my ability to sustain. Thus, both tithe and the Sabbath are referred to as holy. And just as you never see a passage that refers to the Sabbath of the Jews, you never see a tithe of the Jews. It's a tithe that is holy unto the Lord, as the Sabbath is the Lord, the day of the Lord, right? The holy day of the Lord. Both are to be observed and maintained regardless of other circumstance. Think about Sabbath keeping. What if you only kept Sabbath when it was sunny? Right? That circumstance determined whether you were going to keep Sabbath that week or not. Well, in Michigan, you know, you'd have six months of no Sabbath keeping. But think about it. The Sabbath is not in it itself. The day is not longer than other days. It's not brighter and better. It doesn't just always turn 73 and sunny every Sabbath day, even though that'd be nice, but it doesn't. But he doesn't say whenever you feel like it's a good Sabbath day, then you have yourself a Sabbath day. No. No. Rain or shine, the commandment is very simple. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now let's apply the same principles to tithing. I don't care if your bank account is huge or tiny. If you feel blessed or you feel... Regardless of other circumstance, the tithe is holy to the Lord. Amen? Consistency, steadfastness, faithfulness is what the Lord is looking for 
in both the memorial of his creation and the memorial of his power to sustain that creation. Interestingly enough, both the Sabbath and tithe returning were things that Christ in his own life and ministry had to correct the people's understanding of. For example, when Christ, when it came to the issue of Sabbath keeping, you recall this, his disciples and he were walking through a field one day and they had the audacity, the temerity, to run their hand through the heads of grain that were ripe and squeeze their fingers together and raise them to their mouths. Because that, of course, was harvesting. And that was therefore working, and thus a violation of the Sabbath day. So they had the audacity to accuse Christ, the creator of Sabbath, of violating his own principles. And of course, Christ had to correct them. He explains that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Basically, I'm the guy who built it. Trust me, I know how to keep it holy. And what these guys are doing, now you might have come up with some extra things that I'm breaking your law, but that's not a real law, right? God's law has not been violated. They're doing just fine, right? So did Christ abolish the Sabbath then? No, of course. He clarified it. He recalibrated it to what it's supposed to be. Yes, there are big, there are practical things that we are to do and not to do, but the principle is resting and worshiping and fellowshipping with the Lord and other believers and doing his work on the Sabbath day, not our own pleasure. But they had taken those details and focused so much on the details of Sabbath keeping and it even added to them that the whole principle of Sabbath keeping was lost. It actually had become a day of burden instead of a day of rest. Now, notice what Christ has to address in the issue of tithe. Go to Matthew chapter 23. Very similarly to the issues with Sabbath keeping, Jesus had to address the issue of tithe returning. 23, verse 23, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. If you want to read some of the harshest words of Christ, it's all in Matthew chapter 23. It's the woe to the hypocrites, the scribes and Pharisees. And here's another one. Verse 23 of Matthew 23 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Right? Claiming one thing but not actually doing it. And now he's specifically going to address tithe returning. He says, you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin. These are, these are not like grains and barleys and massive big truckloads. Of, these are like your little box garden, your little herb gardens at home. Like, oh, I got this much of it, and I'm going to calculate one-tenth of it and make sure it goes back. They were fastidious in their tithe returning. But he goes on to say, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. So while you were focusing on making sure you had the right amount of mint returned to the Lord, you forgot to be nice to people, to be kind to people, to be just and to be generous. You focused in on the, uh, on the practical with removing the principle. So does Christ say, they therefore no longer tithe, just be nice? No, look what he says. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. What Christ is looking for, whether it's in Sabbath-keeping or tithe-returning or any other duty of the Christian life, is not just blandly keeping a principle with no practical application or just focusing on every practical thing and losing sight of the principles. He's looking for principle and practical, spirit and truth, to be mixed together. 
He wants a harmonious blend of the big picture and the details. Sure, tithe the mint and the cumin and anise. That's good. And also be just and kind and merciful. You should do all those things. So that's the tithe. It's holy unto the Lord. It's of the increase. And it comes first before all other things. It's a very simple premise. By the way, I love the simplicity of the tithing process. You receive a $100 gift, you don't have to calculate, okay, how much do I return? No, one-tenth. Very simple. Very simple. In, in much the same way that the Sabbath. You don't, he doesn't just say keep a seventh day. He says the seventh day. There's one particular day, that one. And the same thing with the tenth. Which tenth? The first tenth. Not till it whittles down to $1.95 and you're like, all right, now here's one to give to the Lord a few coins. No, 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 no. Seek ye first, and all those things will be added. The last seventh for Sabbath, the first tenth for tithe. Is that clear? Do you see how simple that is? I praise the Lord that he gave us the tithe system and not a complicated tax code. You know? Bracketed and bulleted and this and that and if this and that. Find a loophole. And the Lord says, you got this much, give me tenth. What do you mean? You know what I mean. (laughs) It's very simple. It's good for all time zones. It's good for all cultures. Everyone can do it. Whatever you've increased, seek ye first the kingdom of God and return the faithful 10%. Now, that's just tithe. Let's move to offerings. Even inside the word offerings gives you a hint of how they should be given. They are to be offered. Right? It's not a requirement, per se, but it is an expected offering. Let's look at the difference, and this is a big difference. Go to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25 Moses was there on the mountaintop with the Lord, and the Lord gives him instruction about the building of a sanctuary. But I want you to notice how the building was to go forward. Exodus chapter 25, we're going to start with verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they may bring me, and what? An offering. Now watch this carefully. From how many people? Everyone. Who gives it how? Willingly. With his heart. You shall take my offering. Don't you look at the complexity, but the beautifulness of it. It's his offering. You're bringing it to me. You're going to offer it to me. It's my offering. And I want you to take it from everyone who would like to give. Everyone can participate in this just as much as tithe. But this one now adds the conditional phrase. If your heart is stirred to give. Now the tithe, requirement. Don't care how you feel about it. Don't care if it's rainy. You return your tithe. But on this one, he says, I want you to choose and cooperate with my work. He goes on to explain. Then he, watch how practical this is. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. And he says, here's what I need. Don't just tell them, you know, bring me whatever you want. Here's what I actually need. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins, and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Look at how the Lord does this. He paints a picture of what the project is. 
He doesn't want them to do it mindlessly. He says, I want to have a sanctuary among you, and I want you to help build it. I want to dwell among you, and if that's something that you want in return, I want you to choose to help. It's a building campaign. It's a building project, and the Lord doesn't take from the tithe. He asks for offerings if your heart is moved to give. Now, that's a fascinating premise there. We see, by the way, if you were to read in 2 Chronicles 24, the interesting account of Joash, the boy king who became king at seven years old. And when the temple was in disrepair, apparently he looked back at the original building of God's sanctuary and said, let's do it like that. And he set a box. You've probably seen the children's book about this with the hole dug through it, you know, and set it right by the temple gate so that everyone could come through, could give as their heart was willing to give. And they kept emptying the box and emptying the box because it kept going overflowing because people wanted to give to the Lord's cause. Now, they didn't go to pay the Lord's workers, but it did go to forward the Lord's work. Tithe pays the workers. Offerings cover the expenses of the work. There's a difference. Okay? Thus, we have Malachi chapter 3, the quintessential text. There are probably only a few phrases that people have memorized from Malachi, and I'm guessing chapter 3 and verse 10 is it. If you've ever picked up a tithe envelope, you've been confronted with Malachi chapter 3 and verse 10. But I want you to notice that it was, it actually starts with verse 8 as a rebuke to the people of God for, as he says, robbing God. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 8, he asked the rhetorical question, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? And notice what he says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Then he tells them, here's how to remedy it. Bring all the tithes into where? The storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing, there will not be room enough to receive it. And again, let's please not get into this, that tithe is a contractual thing. Aha, if I return my 10%, the Lord owes me. No, no, no. He's going to bless as he sees fit, but our obligation is to return what he requires. But he says, I'll be faithful if you're faithful in return. Again, offerings are situational. That's why we have offering appeals. And they'll be for different things, different parts of the work, different projects that are going on. Different immediate needs that are not always the same. But tithes, always the same. Tithes are continual. Offerings are conditional. Offerings are solicited, while tithe is simply collected. Tithe is for the consistent maintenance of God's workers, while offerings are for the forwarding of God's work in special projects as you sense the Holy Spirit leading you to give. Now, the question often comes up, what is the storehouse today? Now, obviously, when Melchizedek came walking in, he was the priest of God Most High, and you return your tithe directly to him. In the ancient Israelite economy, the question was asked, well, you wouldn't have to ask, where do you go? You go to the temple, you go to the sanctuary, and there's the priest. They minister. It's very clear cut. But nowadays, now that Jesus has come, now that that old covenant, if you will, the old systems are gone away. Is there a storehouse anymore, or do I just give, is this tithe obliterated? Do we pay the workers from the tithe? Is that still a thing? Well, let's consult the New Testament. By the way, the, always the authentic, genuine, 
explanator, if you will, of the Old Testament is the New Testament. It's a very simple premise. If you're not sure what the Old Testament means, see how they use it in the New Testament. And watch what the Apostle Paul does here. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This is one of several different places where Paul employs this instruction. Galatians chapter 3, starting with verse 7. He says, Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. You have to understand how radical of a statement that is. The the people of that time, the Jewish people, their entire identity was wrapped up on their genetic connection to the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the fathers of the households. It's like, that is our line. Abraham is our father. And Paul has the audacity to say, only those who are of faith are actually true Abrahamites, right? By the way, Paul wasn't the first one to do that. You recall Jesus did it? John chapter 8, he's dealing with the scribes and Pharisees. And he says, I know that you are Abraham's children, but you seek to do things that Abraham never would have. You want to kill me. Abraham never once wanted to kill me. In fact, he goes on to say, you do the deeds, the desires of your father. You want to do your father, the devil. He's like, DNA, you might have a genetic link to Abraham, but spiritually, you're of a different father. And here, Paul picks that up and says, the specialness of Israel is not their genetic, you know, lineage. It's their faithfulness to God's word. And thus, he can say very confidently in uh, Galatians, I'm sorry, chapter 3 and verse 7, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So he makes a very strong case that Israel is not just the territory of the borders, it's the faithfulness of God's people regardless of their time era. Okay? Now we add to that, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul was a minister of the gospel, a worker for God's cause in the New Testament time. And the question might come up, well, now that Jesus has died on the cross, is the systematic benevolence or the regular giving of returning of funds to the Lord to support his workers even needed anymore? Is it just every man for himself? But look at what Paul says. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? And, you are, and are you not my work in the Lord? He's like, of all the people who should believe I'm a true apostle, it's you because I raised you up. If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and and Cephas? Apparently, the implication is there that the wives would travel with their husbands doing these ministries. He's like, somebody finances that food, that drink, that travel. Now, how did Paul finance 
a large bout of his work, his evangelistic work, through tent making, his own stuff, right? So he spent part of his time trying to muster enough money to spend it in ministry. And he makes the argument, hey, 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 I should be paid for the work that I'm doing. He goes on to say, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit or tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man? Or does not the law say the same also? What law is he talking about? Roman law? Of course not. The Old Testament law. He's saying the same thing applies now as it did then. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. You get the picture? This, this, this ox is working the grain. You should at least let him eat it. And then he goes on. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ." It's fascinating how Paul builds this whole argument. He says, I could make this whole argument, but I won't. He says, I should stand here and demand payment. It's only right. The law says I'm owed this. I have the right to collect from you in material things as I've worked in spiritual things. But nevertheless, I'm going to lay down that right because I don't want to hinder the gospel. But he does make the case that the same thing in the Old Testament should exist in the New. Now, if you'll notice, your tithe envelope, everyone has an access to one. If you could pull one out, please. We're going to use a little object lesson. It's right in front of you. Tithe envelope. What is the storehouse? Again, in the, in the days in which the tithing system was codified in the Old Testament. It was very clear. There was the sanctuary, there's the temple, and there were the priests that worked there. There were the Levites, the whole tribe. In fact, the Levites didn't have their own lands to work, their own commerce. They had to simply rely on the returns of tithes and the giving of offerings for their subsistence and the carrying forward of their work. The same is true today. Paul makes the argument that it should have been true in the New Testament, and in the Seventh-day Adventist Church, this structure has been established. That tithe, in fact, it goes around there. If you go on the back part there, it breaks down the difference between tithes and offerings. It's very simple. And I don't know if you've never studied it, but I'm guessing you have. But just as a review, this is a good crash course. Your personal giving plan. Tithe is 10% of income. Very simple. When you faithfully return your tithe as an act of worship, it is then held in trust at the storehouse of what? Notice it does not say of the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church. The local congregation in the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not the storehouse. The local congregation does not hold property. It does not pay its employees. It all goes through the Michigan Conference. In the Seventh-day Adventist Church structure, that's where the local churches have their ownership and operating funds. And so the storehouse for the payment of work for the ministers goes through the Michigan Conference. 
So technically, I'm not an employee of the Muskegon Seventh-day Adventist Church, nor I'm an employee of the Fremont Seventh-day Adventist Church. Praise the Lord. I'm an employee of the Michigan Conference, and they happen to operate the Michigan, uh, the Muskegon and Fremont Seventh-day Adventist Churches, as well as Alpena and Bad Axe and Lansing and UP, all the places up there. You know, All of us there. Okay? So that's where it returns. Now, offerings in addition to that, by the way, how does the, how does the, how does the tithe, some people ask, like, what is, where does the tithe go? Well, clearly it doesn't go to my pocket directly, or I, I drive better vehicles. But um, in all seriousness, it goes to the conference, and they distribute among the workers in an equitable fashion. But it doesn't all just stay here in Michigan. It doesn't all just stay here in Muskegon. We get a piece of it, and Michigan keeps a part of it. But there's a global structure. If you understand the Seventh-day Adventist Church is not just a denomination, it's a worldwide movement to hasten the coming of Christ. We have a three angels message to give to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And thus, as it says here, from there, from the Michigan Conference, it blesses God's work at your home church by supporting the ministry and religious education. Another portion of it flows to the General conference. So when we return the tithes to the Michigan conference, some of it comes back down to our local church, and another portion goes on up above it to the general conference of Seventh Adventists, which is the world field of the church, where it is used to support the spreading of the gospel into all the world. And there's a we could I would love I would love to have a good I don't even know if I could give it, but I'd love to see a good seminar on exactly how tithe dollars. You know, it's like you ever see the old films about how a bill becomes a law. It first goes through this, and it goes through this, and it comes out <laughs> costing way too much money on the other end. But in tithe, the same thing happens. You return your tithe, it goes from this person, it goes to the conference, and a, a portion of it is going down to the local church, a portion goes to the general conference, a portion goes here, and you could see from 30,000 feet how the Lord's work is spanning all over the world. It's pretty interesting. But then you have offerings. Love offerings. It says, your free will gifts to God may be used as follows. Again, the implication is the tithe is not free will. Offerings are. And there's several different examples here. Local combined budget. So if you would like to give to this local church, as King Joe asked at this time, if there's a building thing or ongoing repairs or maintenance or insurance or ministries that happen, evangelism, or if you want to give to evangelism, or if you want to just give to evangelism, just whatever you'd like to do. You can do all of those things. And it lists off some of, from maintenance expenses, community outreach programs, adventures, pathfinders, Sabbath school expenses, all kinds of things from the local church. Now they go out to, what if I want to give to the Michigan Conference? What's a good way to do that? Michigan Advanced Partners, which is what our offering was for today. And it goes to help all of the different entities inside of Michigan further their work. Assistance is given to evangelism funding, scholarships for worthy students to attend our academies, as well as helping with building projects, and the list goes on and on. Then you can give to the world budget if you'd like. To spread the three angels' messages in 700 languages, your gifts mingle with those of Adventists all over the world to support world missions, radio and media evangelism, and Adventist universities, while not neglecting the special needs of the inner city or disaster relief. So if you want to give to humanitarian causes through the work of the church, give to ADRA. If you want to help spread the gospel to far unreached places, go to Adventist World Radio or different media outlets. There's all kinds of opportunities that you can give if your heart so chooses to give. And of course, trust services will be addressed next Sabbath. But the point is this, that in tithe, the Lord expects us to return to him so that we 
have a continual reminder that He is the one who not only created us, but sustains us throughout our life. With offerings, He appeals to us to help further His work by giving to the cause and hastening the coming of Christ. All of which are the Lord's to ask for and expect. I want to read you a simple statement here from Councils on Stewardship. Page 73, as we close. God's plan in the tithing system is beautiful in its simplicity and equality. All may take hold of it in faith and courage, for it is divine in its origin. In it are combined simplicity and utility, and it does not require depth of learning to understand and execute it. Nothing we talked about today is too deep for anyone to apply. It's very simple. 10% is required of the Lord, and anything else you want to give beyond that, the Lord encourages you to finish His work in the world. All may feel that they can act a part in carrying forward the work, the precious work of salvation. Every man, woman, and youth may become a treasurer for the Lord and may be an agent to meet the demands upon the treasury. Great objects are accomplished by this system. If one and all would accept it, each would be made a vigilant and faithful treasurer for God, and there would be no want of means with which to carry forward the great work of sounding the last message of warning to the world. The treasury will be full if all adopt this system, and the contributors will not be left the poorer. You know, you think in a very finite sense, If I give this, then I'll be out this. But you forget that the one who's asking for the giving is also the one who can provide on the other end. So the Lord says, test me on this. Try me on this. I dare you to outgive. He says, if you're faithful, I will be faithful in return. Through every investment made, they will become more wedded to the cause of present truth. They will be, quote, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold upon eternal life. Again, God's plan for our finances deals much more with our character than our capital. He's looking for faithfulness and reliance on Him continually in the finishing of His work soon and very soon. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.